0: Every Sunday at Mass, we profess our faith in the Holy Trinity, the Church, her teachings, and specifically, the resurrection of the dead. But what does that teaching really mean? Where does it come from? And how does it affect the way we treat the bodies of our loved ones when they die? Join us today as we explore these questions and more with Dr. Scott Hahn, author of Hope to Die, the Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body. I'm Father Dave Pavanka, president of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Franciscan University presents. I'm your host, Father Dave Pavanka, president of Franciscan University of Steubenville. And we're talking today about the death and the resurrection of the body. I'm joined by our panelists Dr. Regis Martin, professor of systematic theology here at Franciscan University of Steubenville, and Catholic author Emily Stimson Chapman, who collaborated with Dr. Scott Hahn on his book, Hope to Die. Taking his turn in the guest chair, a little bit different for you, Dr. Hahn. Uh, is Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Dr. Hahn has been a theology professor here since 1990, yes. which is amazing, which is great. He's also the president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and the best-selling author of over 40 popular and academic books, including his newest, Hope to Die, the Christian Meaning of The Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body. Welcome, Dr. Hahn.
1: It's great to be with you, Father.
0: Uh, Congratulations.
1: Thank you. How about a question? (laughs) Why did you write this? Well, it wasn't something I was looking forward to. Uh, Back in the fall of 2018, uh, two men, Sean Feiler and John Henry Crosby, approached me and asked if I would speak at a small symposium in Manhattan on um, cremation. And I, and a popular I, topic for you, yeah. I'm sure. And, I, and I, I stood there somewhat startled as I heard words tumbling out of my mouth. Yes, I'd be glad to. And as I walked away and drove off to the airport in DC, I said to my friend, what was I thinking? <laughs> you know? And I, I felt a kind of impulse to say yes. Uh, perhaps it was that second glass of wine after dinner. Yeah. I don't know, but I had a sense of calling. And so I, uh, I applied myself for the next several months And then, as the day drew near, and I realized where there'll be about a dozen people, there'll be chaplains, priests, you know, as well as lay people, uh, men and women, scholars, and ordinary folks. And I was like, what have I agreed to? And then, in the last 72 hours, uh, it came together in a way that was somewhat unexpected. And I, uh, I did not want to kind of step into it, you know, in terms of, right. oh, here's another chapter in the culture wars besides cohabitation, LGBT, now we're going to take on cremation. But I just got a sense of fittingness, you know. Right. I emphasize that in the book, that God didn't have to create the world, and once He did, He didn't have to redeem it, and He didn't have to become incarnate, suffer and die to do so. But it was fitting, when you know who God is as Trinity, how much it fits that He would love us like that. And I think that's what you do beautifully, is that
0: uh, a danger is to make this a book about cremation.
1: Right, it's really not. No,
0: it's a book about the body, right? Yeah, Uh, The body, And, and you talk about the different understandings of the body. So maybe we could begin there.
1: Right. Well, you know, in a certain sense, I backed into why the church has always taught this norm, even though there's a principle of accommodation that allows for cremation in modern times. But if God takes flesh... If Christ dies and rises and feeds us with that resurrected flesh in the Eucharist, in the old, how fitting it was to emphasize the propriety of sacred burial as a reverential act, as an act of religion. But after the resurrection, how much more essential is it to get with the program of God, you know, and to treat the body the way He has? Right, right. So, this is sort of what I try to lay out and... Uh, I felt like a messenger boy. I really mm-hmm. didn't feel like this was something on my heart for a long time. And so I recruited Emily, who's been a dear friend for many years, because I knew I needed help. I've been working on a lot of other projects. And so if this thing is ever going to, you know, come to light, uh, I, I was really grateful for the collaboration.
2: Well, Scott, I uh, admire your courage uh, for going to New York for any reason. <laughs> <laughs> <But> cremation. <laughs> uh, Why is cremation uh, so um, unseemly? I mean, can't God reintegrate uh, all of those scattered atoms?
1: Right. Well, you know, when you look at the human body, you see not just a kind of container for the soul, you see what is unique to us as humans made in the image and likeness of God. When you look at the incarnation even more. And so the question is not what can God do? Does he have to have us bury the body in order for him to resurrect it? But because of what God has done yep. and will do with the resurrection of the flesh, we say the resurrection of the body, but the original form of the Apostles' Creed is actually sarks. It's the resurrection of yep. the flesh. Right. You know, and Augustine points out that on no point of Christian doctrine do we receive more opposition than this? And so, we have to kind of take a step or two back and see why. Well, because, you know, God has done this with the body, so what should we do in response? You know, if somebody's burned in a home, you know, a, f- a house fire and, they, and they're reduced to ashes, you know, can God, well, of course, God can resurrect the body in that instance, so He can resurrect the bodies that are cremated. The, the, the question yeah. then is one of fittingness. If God plans to resurrect the flesh, the whole body, and glorify it, what is the most appropriate Christian response to this unbelievable gift? Yeah. And that's why the church's norm has always been so constant, yeah. that just as the Jews, so the Christians treat this, you know, as yeah. we, as I describe in Tobit 1. Yeah.
2: Well, would, would you be willing to uh, make the concession
1: then that there is no intrinsic
2: objection Uh, To cremation. It's not immoral, but it's not fitting. It's not appropriate.
1: Yeah, I would say we've got to be careful about reducing morality down to binding norms alone. There are binding norms that are irreversible and all of that kind of thing. But when it comes to responding to the gospel, the new law, the law of Christ, that isn't less binding. In a certain sense, it is internally binding on the heart. And so, I would say there is a fittingness, but there's also a bond, a bond between truth and life. And this is what the church does, but at the same time, the church accommodates herself not only to culture, to custom, but also to the plain fact that people's bodies often get burned up. But, you know, in a culture where you have cremation as an anti-Christian gesture Mm -hmm. from the 1700s through the 1800s until the present day, then, of course, it was excommunicable offense. But when people no longer see cremation as something anti-religious, then there is a point of accommodation where you can condescend. You can stoop to that cultural blindness, but at the same time, the proper respect for the dead is itself a curriculum. It's a pedagogy. It kind of completes what baptism begins, the way we treat the body. Yeah,
3: Mm -hmm. and that's one of the reasons why we're so careful in the book to not lead with cremation. Like we talk about it in the introduction, but the whole idea of what we do with the body flows from the gospel it flows from an under, it flows from the theology of the body it right. flows from an understanding of christian history and so it's easy to be like oh cremation and dive in cuz yeah. you know burning bodies is always a fun topic yeah. isn't it but it's 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 the last yeah. piece really yeah. and if you don't have a thoroughly christian incarnational understanding of everything that sure. comes before then it's easy to be like, well, is it immoral? But it's, right. that's not the point. It's, is it fitting? Is it the right way to honor yeah. the Temple of the Holy Spirit? There, there's
2: a, a, a wonderful line of, in Joseph Ratzinger where he speaks of the astonishing uh, conjunction, uh, the amazing alliance of Logos and sarks. And I'm glad you stressed that word. We're talking about flesh not just spirit. It's not the resurrection of the dead, but the body, the blooming body is somehow resurrected, raised up. So I think there is a kind of integrity uh, to it, which uh, standing against cremation is a way of upholding. We draw attention to it in a particularly heightened
1: way. This body is sacred. It's off limits. Don't set a match to it. You know, that's why I choose to begin with a vignette, a kind of experience that I had as a newly ordained Presbyterian pastor called by my family to preside at this funeral service for my grandmother. And uh, I I preached a homily. It left everybody underwhelmed, you know. But my mom was sort of struck by the fact that I really thought that the body was going to be resurrected, even her mom's body. And she commented upon that. And, you know, I, I said, yes, I do believe that. We all do. That's in the creed. And, she just kind of was in uh, okay, incredulity, uh, And then, of course, we had later examples in my own family, in my extended family, of loved ones who wanted to get cremated, and my father in particular. And so when I sat down and talked with him, I, I left that out of the book out of favor for my family. Um, but uh, I talked to him, and I didn't convince him, although he did come to a childlike faith near the end of his life, but it was sort of a deferential response. Okay, if you feel strongly about it, you know, and and your siblings do too, well, they didn't, but I I, I got them to accommodate me. But Mm. it's the kind of thing where if people have cremated, you know, this isn't a call to a guilt trip, you know, by any means, because it isn't a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. It isn't a violation of one of the positive precepts of the church, and yet at the same time, it's a teachable moment. It's an opportunity right. for me, at least, to learn and right. to share this I think that's topics. what you do really
0: beautifully is that I think one of the lines is actually the church permits it but doesn't encourage it or something to that that's effect. Right. And, I, and I think you do that beautifully. And what it does is a teachable moment. It invites us to reflect on, and you do this much at the beginning, the nature of, of being alive and what does it mean to be alive and right. the body and the flesh and the differences of even that basic fundamental, this body is alive, but what does that mean and what does that look like?
1: Yeah, I I begin by pinpointing Genesis 2, verse 7, where God makes man, Adam, from the ground, Adamah, to show us our humble origins. But then in verse 7, he does something for man that he doesn't do for the animals. He breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And that word for life in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew is zoe, zoe which is much more than bios. Bios is where we get biology, that's the physical life, but this is the breath of God, and so the life we have, the breath we breathe, is more than oxygen. It's more than what we share in common with the animals who are sort of like breathing in the oxygen and breathing out the carbon dioxide. You know, we do that, but we do something much more. So, human nature is created in a state of grace, and it's sanctifying grace. We have life, but then we have life, life that is divine. Right, right. So, 10 verses later, when God says, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. You know, it seems like a kind of idle threat because the next page you read they ate and they didn't die unless they did. Yeah. And so, the notion or the mystery of death, you know, is captured there in Genesis 2. And likewise, in 1 John five seventeen. 17, where not all sins are mortal, but there are sins that are mortal. And the word in the Greek there, thanatos, again, is the same term used in Genesis 2. The day you eat of it, you will surely die the death, thanatos. So you know, a bullet to the brain will take out natural physical life. But only by giving consent to mortal sin, when you do, when you definitively prefer the created to the uncreated, the finite to the infinite, you basically perform a mini act of idolatry. Mm-hmm. You snuff out the life of God in the soul. It was a it was a it was a kind of spiritual suicide pact our first parents right, followed right. through And
0: on. I think you you speak of that so beautifully is that the soul. We don't necessarily speak or, or reflect enough about the life of the soul. This. It's not just this heart that's beating, but there's something alive, and how sin affects that and impacts that.
1: That's right. I mean, so after they commit mortal sin, the spiritual substance of the human soul is still intact. Right, right. Right. You can think and you can choose, you can know, love, but... The life of God is not more, less of a death, it's infinitely much, much more of a and death. I think you, um, you
0: make reference to a, a movie that I appreciated, <laughs> The Sixth Sense, but I've used that line several times speaking about that, they're dead and they don't even know it. That like, the you know, soul can be dead and the body can still I have be a number talking. of students like that. <laughs>
3: No Not at friends no, at
0: right. another Where are you, know,
2: you know. teaching? Where else are you teaching? We need to <laughs> yeah. talk. If, if, if you would permit a, a metaphor, uh, there's a line in Flannery O'Connor that comes to mind. She says, in great fiction, two plus two will always be more than four. The body is more than what you see because it's ensouled. Uh, it's, it's somehow informed, energized, animated by pure spirit. Uh, and that survives, to be sure, the body. The meaning is more than the matter, but the matter matters. Right. Because God entered that matter. He became one of us. He became utterly physical,
1: carnal. That's pretty extraordinary. That's he became a, flesh. That's a very apt metaphor because, you know, flesh is more than skin. Flesh is the body in its mortality, in its vulnerability, and that's what Christ assumes. And so you can see how the body is rightly understood to be a kind of small s sacrament of the soul. You know, so I'm not just doing things in my body. I am doing things, you know. It it signifies more than what you can see. That's right. So when the soul experiences spiritual death by snuffing out the life of God and the soul through mortal sin, the body will eventually catch up, you know, so that physical death is a kind of anti sacrament of the spiritual death.
0: But I think it's important is that as a priest, I've seen that in people, that, that their physical is beginning, but when I get to what's really going on, it's a question of the soul. And as their soul begins to be purified, their body literally begins to be purified and healed as yeah. well.
1: That's right, because we're, we're we're not just souls in bodies. Right, we right. are yeah, yeah, embodied souls. Right. Right. Yeah.
3: There was uh, the Netflix, new, Netflix has a new documentary about babies that just came mm. out. I've
1: not seen it. Yes,
3: I know, either. you men not watching the neck. I'm here for the women. Yeah. Uh, but, but in the first episode, they talk about how during... Um, during pregnancy and childbirth, the woman's amygdala changes so that she can be more nurturing to the baby. Mm-hmm. But they did a study on adoptive parents, and the same that's change beautiful. happens in oh adoptive mothers. mothers. Because it's the decision. So the decision of the soul actually physically really changes right. the brain right. of the yeah. adoptive mother so that Absolutely. she can yes. love her baby. Like So it works so beautifully. like, oh, it's Theology Absolutely. of the Body like on Netflix. Like, they just beautiful. don't know.
0: You know, when, when on have. Excuse me, we, Doctor. We're just, out of time. Just a moment. Okay. We have oh, much please. more to say about this topic, so please stay with us on Franciscan Univ- University Presents.
4: There's absolutely no doubt that the Catholic Church allows cremation. At the same time, it's always seen a certain fittiness to burial of the body. Now, back in the 19th century, the Masons were actually trying to get at the Catholic doctrine of the resurrection of the body, and they started to promote cremation. And it was only at that time the church said, okay, It is not possible to cremate if you are a Catholic. It freed that up in the 1960s. And the problem was this, that the Masons were trying to say, oh, we're annihilated at death, or the body is a prison, or we're just absorbed back into Mother Earth. Now, as long as those things are not in the mind of a Catholic, then cremation is totally proper. Uh, But as we've seen, or as I said, there is a certain fittingness or the church sees a certain fittingness to burial. And in particular, because of this, Um, it does actually promote in a way the dignity of the body, which at the time that we're living in is under attack. And also, I think it promotes more visits to graveyards in order to pray for the dead, which has always been a very important part of our faith.
2: At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith and reason, wisdom and grace, mercy and truth. You'll study under
0: world-class scholars and seasoned practitioners who are committed to Christ and His Church. With over 40 majors and pre-professional programs, you'll find the formation you need to succeed.
2: At Franciscan University, you'll find more than just a college. You'll find yourself and an educational experience as singular as you are.
0: Welcome back to Franciscan University presents. We're talking about death and the resurrection of the body, and specifically the treatment of a body after the body after the individual's passed. There's actually a rich history about how that is. So, just share some of that with us.
1: Okay. So, you know, when you think about religions, you know, there's a whole spectrum. Certain religions like Buddhism and Hinduism not only have no trouble with cremation, you know, they practice it as part of their own tradition. Uh, Whereas Judaism And Christianity then, of course, is an offshoot Islam, have always treated the body with that kind of sacred respect, that reverence. And so, when you go back to the Old Testament, you know, and you're looking for it, suddenly it's not just here and there, it starts to pop off the page, you know. Uh, After the great trial of Abraham in Genesis 22, he has to offer up his only beloved son, Isaac. In Genesis 23, Sarah dies, you know, and people offer him, you know, a place to bury her. no. You know, he makes such a priority of purchasing the land and making it special and all of that. And, oh, that's kind of a surprise. But as you continue reading Genesis all the way to the end, you realize that the story of Joseph climaxes with this preoccupation, not only that he has, but his father Israel, Jacob, has about where will my body be buried? Well, I mean, God can resurrect this body from Egypt just as easily as he can from Canaan. But insofar as the promised land of Canaan is itself a geographical sacrament of heaven. No, I want my body and Jacob's body to come under oath, swear to God. And you're like, okay, that's kind of anticlimactic mm-hmm. for the last episode of Genesis. But it's the same way in Deuteronomy with Moses and uh, And Joseph and Jacob, and then at the end of Joshua. So, three out of the first six books of the Old Testament end in the most unexpected way where you get this sense that the faithful in the Old Testament were preoccupied not just with the souls of the faithful departed, but their bodies as well. And you trace this like a trajectory through the entire Old Testament, you know, and especially in Tobit, chapter 1. You have the fact that the Tobit is so righteous for many reasons, but especially how he treats the body, even though burying a body under pagan rule is a a capital offense. They could end up burying Tobit's body, you know, but he doesn't. And why? Because in Tobit 13, you have the restoration that God alone can do, bringing about the resurrection of the body. And I trace this all the way to 2 Maccabees 7, where the mother who loses her seven beloved sons is infused with this faith that their bodies will be raised and that they share that same faith. I I feel as though people read the Old Testament like you might walk into a movie theater and sit there and say, boy, you know, the, the movie's so blurry. I can't, I can make out the character. Oh, what is this? Oh, glasses. And then suddenly the spectacles of faith show you with precision and clarity that the people in the Old Testament had faith like we did that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Moses and all of the rest had the kind of spiritual vision that you have when you put on those glasses, those 3D spectacles, and you realize, okay, it wasn't blurry. I was blurred in my vision, you know. And this to me is what the gift of faith not only does for us, but it did to them because we share the same faith as Paul insists and throughout his, his epistles, you know.
2: And then in- I think God knew what he was doing. I I think the patriarchs and (laughs) the prophets did too. Yeah, I mean, how odd of God to choose the Jew. It was an inspired choice. I mean, he didn't choose Athenians, people who dwelt in cities, but a desert people, a nomadic tribe uh, rooted in the soil. Uh, grounded uh, in reality, physical reality. I mean, the most sensuous, concrete of people, they could receive the message. And they had this regard for the body to begin with. I mean, the body is there, it's palpable, you can't ignore it, we're not spirits. I mean, the Jews are the least platonizing of, of people. They don't live amid shadows, but there's real stuff here and God can sanctify it. That's right. I, I think especially in a throwaway culture, uh, we. A a book like yours, I I think, is really a witness to the importance, the centrality of the body. It really matters that we not throw it away. We throw everything else away, but maybe we shouldn't dispose of the body uh, in in such a lighthearted, insouciant way. It matters. It has a weight, a dignity that, that God will will reckon us uh, uh, with if we don't answer
1: uh, properly uh, to the demand. You know, when we think of Israel, we can see the faith infused to them as God's revelation is given to them for the whole world. But if you look at the Egyptians, I mean, the pagans par excellence, in some ways, they're less pagans than some Catholics or Americans are today because of how they view the body as well. I mean, the pyramids are proof, exhibit A that they believed in some sort of afterlife that would be infusing the physical. And so, I mean, it isn't altogether clear, and it certainly isn't normative or right. right. But there, the Sumerians, the Assyrians, and others too, it isn't until idolatry has seeped into the entirety of the human race, practically speaking, that the body is just something like a a disposable carton, you know, that you can't wait to throw into the trash or burn or what have you. And, you know, what you back into through paganism, you end up kind of celebrating when you embrace paganism. And that's where we are today, you know? We speak of the new evangelization, which is like 50 or 60 years old. But I I like to point out to people that the new devangelization is about two or 300 years old. Because, I mean, there really is not just a kind of post-Christian, but it's vehemently anti-Christian. And they recognize sometimes more than we do you know, that the way you treat the body in some ways is more effective as catechesis than just simply indoctrinating kids. Sure.
0: but you, you make... Oh,
3: I was kidding, yeah. but doesn't it work the opposite too then? So the body being treated poorly is the end result of all the de-evangelization. But if you start treating the body as it should be treated then you can work backwards from there and start re-evangelizing through a true understanding of the body.
1: Yeah, there's a circularity in terms of how the body and soul relate. I'm thinking about your comment at the end of the last segment about how the mother's soul is changed and how her body reflects that. You know, it isn't the body determining it. it, it, it we're psychosomatic, and so our souls shape our bodies, but our bodies shape our souls. And so you teach people not only by what you Share in terms of doctrine, but how you treat the body. And so, yes, when people treat the body poorly, they make it harder to believe the mysteries of faith. Mm-hmm. When you get people to treat it reverently, you kind of create an affinity or an openness to They're like, hmm, okay, I can see you that see, more you, clearly.
0: I think what you just said is so important is that, that if you're unable to recognize or appreciate the mysteries of the faith, then you're not gonna be able. And the mystery of our faith is the resurrection. And I think you make a beautiful relationship between how we see the body, after the resurrection is different. That that because Jesus' body was laid in this tomb and three days later the tomb was empty, that has something to say to us related to this. Please.
1: Well, you know, as a Protestant pastor and now as a Catholic lay apostle, I, I can see that where the body is treated with, you know, where you're giving special focus to the body, baptism, weddings, and funerals, these are the three singular moments for the new evangelization, to re-evangelize, because, you know, we're so busy, we're just so distracted by a thousand and one things, it's only when we stop, oh, wow, look at that newborn baby, and what's happening, he's becoming a child of God, she is regenerated, divine life suffused, or wow, the two become one flesh, and then they're going to be family, or wow, We've lost someone, but that mother of mine, that body of hers was my home and my sibling's home. You know, know, more than books, you know, more than catechisms, those moments create the conditions of possibility for dramatic openness to the good news, where the good news is suddenly almost too good to be true, unless it's true. Yeah. Well, Emily, that
2: point that you made at, at the end of the last segment, that has stayed with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, could, could you maybe return to that? Because it enshrines this principle of the sheer unity of body and soul. Mm-hmm. We're not dualists. There's a psychosomatic unity, a line of horizon, if you will, between body uh, and spirit, matter and, and meaning, time and eternity, God and man. And we see this precisely in the case of the adopted mother. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: No, and I think it's such a beautiful example of. I mean, it's, you guys know me. I love the theology of the body, mm-hmm. so I'm always going to find some of the reasons I got to work with Scott on it. I always find a way to bring it Even back. Even the theology to that. of the dead body. The I mean, theology <laughs> of the dead body. Just let me talk about the theology of the body. So we often think about physics or the physical, the biological, affecting us. So my emotions are a product of not having slept enough, or hormones, or not having eaten the right foods, and that's and that's true. The body affects the soul in those ways. But the soul affects the body, and so that's why growth in the virtues is so important. So when we're more virtuous, when we make choices to do good things, that has an effect on the body. When we make a choice to love, when we make a choice to sacrifice, when we make a choice to choose a child as our own, that changes the wiring in our bodies, and virtue becomes Easier becomes a natural, habitual, physical response in a certain way. So, it's just that intense unity you have between the two.
1: And not just for individuals in our diet and that sort of thing, but you and Chris, Kimberly and I, you know, the way we treat each other's bodies also has this profound way of shaping or reshaping our souls. And I think in a certain sense, you know, that's the test. As Paul says, you know, he who loves his wife loves his own flesh. You know, in Ephesians five, and right. you know, it's a call to love. You know, to love neighbor as self, to love God more than and
0: myself. And while different, uh, I, as a priest, it was interesting in seminary discussing the sacraments, and that there is a tactile part of every sacrament. You yeah. talked about the baptism, which is beautiful, and the anointing, and yet sacrament of reconciliation, the priest is instructed to place his hand on the penitent's head. That every sacrament, ordination, the bishop touches that there there is contact in the body and unfortunately because of all the things that are going on we're losing some of that. that that there's there's fear about the body and touching the and and i think that's something that unfortunately has had a negative impact on us that that in some ways we're fearing this and we're right. anxious yeah. rightly so you know yeah there's a healthy aspect yes, of absolutely. fear and an unhealthy absolutely, aspect absolutely. i remember
1: Monsignor Bruskowitz saying, You know, when I place my hand over you, picture the blood of Christ coming down upon I mean, you. But and
0: there's something about that, the, again, the body, we are incarnational people, and have a hand placed. I, as a priest, love when a priest lays his hands on my head and I feel that. Yeah. And, or or you know, the smell of a baby when, when the baby's right. been anointed, right? That right. we should yeah. do that every day. For I,
2: mean, I mean, that's a, a, a pretty a canonical Catholic principle that grace perfects nature, it doesn't abolish it. It doesn't wipe out nature, the body is not suppressed, it's it's rather baptized, sanctified, sacramentalized. I I had a friend uh, years ago, who, whenever I would ask him, how are you doing, Fred, he would say, I'm decomposing. <laughs> well, the guy lived to be about 95. And he may have died of hyperbole. But there was something beautiful about his face, his smile. It was wreathed in happiness. So I think his spirit animated this body, even as it was decomposing. It, it couldn't. The body couldn't quite
1: conquer the spirit. You know, Understanding body-soul is important because we distinguish not to separate, but to unite. Right. But we distinguish to unite, not to confuse, because we're not reducible to our bodies, Mm -hmm. but, you know, we're inseparable from them. The body is intrinsically mortal. The soul is intrinsically immortal. St. Thomas speaks of how... We're a composite of contrary elements, indeed. Animals, when they die, the animal's soul perishes. Angels don't die because they don't have mortal bodies. We're that unique hinge of creation on which everything turns from the visible to the invisible. You know, and so to see how delicately God fashions the human person to be a sacramental mystery, a body, a visible, the soul, invisible, you know, and so it's a duality in unity, which is like the opposite of dualism right? Right. and the solution to it as well.
3: Yeah. But it's one of the ironies of our culture that we're so obsessed with the body and what our bodies right. look exactly. like and are they healthy and are they thin. But we're also freaked out by the body. Because <laughs> we're not sure <laughs> we have a we soul. We don't want to be near yeah. the dead body. You know, all the Catholics with our yes. relics and the fleshiness of Catholicism is foreign and disturbing to people who aren't enmeshed in it. And right. so... At the same time that we're obsessed with it, we've lost. And And the
0: paradox in that, yeah, obsessed with the body and yet totally dismissive of the body.
2: I mean, if, if you view the body as an object, a thing, it's out there, I can reshape it, gender bending, if you like, then that, I mean, that's not only dishonest, but it's destructive. You don't really respect the body. You don't take it seriously enough. It, it has a, a logos. It has a meaning. Uh, and you can't dispense with that uh, and change it as you, as you might change a sweater. I mean, when Lewis, C.S. Lewis speaks about Trousered apes. He intends that as a caricature of those who really think man is reducible to matter. If he's just matter, then there's no matter. It doesn't matter. I mean, he's he's not a he's not a hippopotamus, and he's not an angel. He's this strange amalgam in between. Okay.
0: And on that point, we will be right back with more. Franciscan University presents. Stay with us.
2: You don't have to trade top flight academic programs for a passionately Catholic identity. You can have both. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll not only deepen your faith, you'll be prepared for real world success by dedicated professors for whom excellence isn't just a goal, but the standard. Ready to get started? Check out franciscan.edu.
0: Welcome back and thank you for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents, and we're coming to you from the Communication Arts Studio here on the campus of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Our students are operating the cameras and equipment, Dr. Regis Martin and Emily Stimson Chapman, and I are talking with Dr. Scott Hahn about death and the resurrection of the body. Now, the title is The Resurrection of the Body. So, because of Jesus' resurrection, we are going to rise, and, and that, that changes everything, right? The, that's right? That's a game changer.
1: So, how does that work? Well, you know, at one level, Christ's resurrection is just one in a series of resurrections. You go back to the Old Testament, you have Elijah and Elisha, you know, that sort of thing. And then, of course, in the Gospels, Jesus is resurrecting Jairus's daughter and Lazarus after four days. But this is not just That's like different. one yeah. more, yeah. you know. Um, there's a sense in which Jesus used those previous miracles to illustrate a point, you know. Oh, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. And they began jeering at him. And you're like, Jesus, stick to theology. You're not much of a medical expert. But he, what he was pointing to with her and likewise with Lazarus, he's just asleep. Well, he'll wake up. Well, he's dead. Well, why didn't you say so? Because what you consider death, I consider sleep. What you consider, you know, and this is, again, getting back to that sixth sense. They, they don't know they're dead. Right. They're like spiritual zombies. And so Jesus' resurrection is different in kind and not just degree because it's more than a resuscitated corpse. It's more than just a historical event. It's more than a prophecy that he gave us that he fulfilled. It really is the deification of humanity. I mean, that's lofty terms, but, I mean, he has assumed what is ours for the purpose of giving us what is his, divinity. So, he assumes the hard, cold, iron bar of humanity, plunges it into the fire of his own divine love until that iron bar becomes red hot. Mm-hmm. And so, it is now, his resurrected body is not only deified, it's what deifies us. It isn't just glorified, it is glorifying us. You know. And so, when the uh, The Eucharist comes to us. That is not just the same body that was in the upper room, not just the same body that was on the cross, buried in the tomb. That is the resurrected body of Jesus. So He suffers and dies to save us from sin, but what we're saved from is not as important as what we're saved for. We're not just saved from prison and hell, we're saved for being enveloped in the eternal life that is God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And suddenly you realize, okay, why is it almost always Sunday in a meal setting that Jesus manifests his resurrected body to prepare us for the Eucharist on Sunday, the Lord's Day, because that is the body that is touched to our lips. Yeah, beautiful. yeah. and he could
2: not come to us uh, as food if he had not himself overcome death, if he hadn't somehow been so transformed by that event as to be literally transhumanized, right. a glorified body. It's the same, but it's other than the same. Uh, and. I don't know that we can plumb the depths of that mystery, even if we stand uh, face-to-face with God, you know, after the parousia, uh, inside the precincts of eternal felicity. We'll still not be able to unpuzzle uh, this mystery. It's just flabbergasting, but we can experience it. I mean, when, when Pope Benedict speaks of baptism as the final mutation uh, in the evolution of the human species, who can imagine that? I mean, we're talking about water uh, and some screaming kid muling and puking, as Shakespeare puts it in his nurse's arms, and this is the final, the final mutation of the entire human race. Yes, that's what baptism ushers in, and and Christ pays for it on the cross, and the fruit of that is the resurrection. I mean, I don't know how we can ever come to an end of that.
0: Right. My, you know, my guess is we can't.
2: Know, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. Yeah. Heaven I mean, is We've that right. got right. like
1: 10 yes. more minutes. So. That's right. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think that people recognize that the Eucharist is sort of the main event, but I'm not sure they appreciate just how much of a main event no. it is. We speak of the Paschal Mystery, and we've kind of retrieved that after centuries of neglect. You know, the memorial of His death and resurrection and ascension to heaven is what we hear in the Mass. But the memorial is Holy Thursday when he institutes the Eucharist. The death, of course, is Good Friday, but he transforms his execution into the consummation of the sacrifice. He not only anticipates his death by instituting the Eucharist, he interprets his death as no longer being the loss of life, but the gift of life. And then the resurrection is not just resuscitating that corpse. It is glorifying that humanity so that when he ascends into heaven to serve as our high priest, he is speaking through mortal men who transform earthly matter into his glorified body so that our mortal bodies can take on his immortal body and he can fulfill his promise. He eats my flesh and drinks my blood. I will raise him up on the last day because the Eucharist is, in effect, what the medieval said was the instrumental cause of our resurrection. When we eat, we assimilate that hamburger to our body. When we receive communion, he assimilates us to his glorified body. And again, it's too good to be true unless this is the truth of the gospel. And I believe that when I was not a Catholic, but I mean in becoming a Catholic and in receiving the Eucharist, it's the good news like exploding our brains. It's it's like on steroids or, you know, on crack. uh, (laughs) But it's legal. (laughs) And it's safe. And encouraged. Yes. Mm. I
3: thought about you the other night. We were watching the season finale because all we do is watch TV. We were watching the season finale of the good of the Good Place, and they finally got to heaven, and it was boring. It was. It was. I
1: b- saw that too. Yeah. Did you see? Yes.
3: yes. And I thought about you. I was like, oh, they need to talk to Scott. They need to hear about your version of what heaven is going to be like.
1: You know, we watched that, and then we had a family discussion for about an hour. <laughs> And then I took my sons out because Jeremiah had just gotten word from the bishop that he was going to be ordained a deacon. And I pulled out these really good cigars on our back porch. Kimberly didn't join us for that part of it, you know, <laughs> yeah. but we had some wine and cigars to celebrate the resurrection of the body and family fun that will last forever, mm-hmm. where we get to hear each other's stories through the eyes of God the Father. Right.
2: Well, Why would paradise be viewed as somehow boring?
3: Because they don't have a concept of the infinite, I think. Because we can't so sin in we, heaven. And there's nothing, you, you can't <laughs> write this sin. Situation. You can do whatever you right. want. Right. It Eventually you run out of sin. everything. You learn of everything. I mean, when there's no infinite love, there's no infinite joy, there's no... And if you well, learn, there's no yeah. God yeah. in yeah, the, the good no place. God. There's right. no God. There's There's Ted yeah. Danson. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, right. You know, Lord have he's mercy. funny, yeah. but he's not
3: God. So, <laughs> right.
0: Oh. Right. But in, in any sense of worship, that if you worship yourself and in heaven... If you're going to worship God and you don't believe in this, what the heck do you do? You get lost
1: in literally in yourself. By the way, we are not recommending The Good Place. It is problematic at many levels, and so I don't want to Get all the hate mail from people. I can't believe know, you recommend. Just, no, 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 just
0: forward time. <laughs> you, <laughs> you know when,
2: when
1: the,
0: not, no, we've not. Seen
1: no, no, I haven't. I
0: no, don't we just it just to be critical. What, what of the hell is right? right? I've yeah. given yeah. all of <laughs> that
2: up. You know, Jean Paul Sartre was dead wrong when he said hell is other people. No, hell is being alone. Heaven is other people. Mm-hmm. The company of of God, the angels and saints, and all those whom we have whom we have left behind, but we find them again on the other side, uh, renewed, somehow glorified, repristinated. I mean, that's a glorious kind of cavalcade, and it takes forever to unfold. You never come to an end.
1: You know, when the Father sends the Son to become a servant, a suffering servant, the Son of Man, in order to take these disobedient servants, you know, to make sons of men into sons of God, you know, then heaven is a family reunion like no homecoming could ever be you know and uh, we try to explain back in the book about, a banquet yeah a banquet yeah, yeah. but it's a marriage supper yes. so it is intimacy it is ecstasy as a married couple you know and then it's the same it's a marriage supper and so it's a feast a banquet you know but when we gather for christmas or whatever as a family i as as a father i used to kind of dominate the conversation when our kids were little you know but now i sit back and i just take it all in because they share these stories, and then when I, when I say something, you know, uh, you know, I like this band, oh, Hannah said, that was my band, oh, that was my favorite, and I get to hear her stories and then his story, and I think that makes us feel like a family when we realize all of our stories are really one story. Yeah. And if that's true for me as an earthly dad and a human family, you know, it'll take billions of years for the billions of people who are part of God's family you know, and not only our perspective, but our guardian angels, too, will get to share in the second chapter. You have, you didn't know that what happened here. And and what we'll hear as we get to share all of these stories, we'll realize, I didn't know that you were on that bus. I didn't realize, you know. And, you know, all of the things that make for connections, that make for, so, Heaven is not just the beatific vision where we stare into the eternal essence of God. As cool as that would be, mm. you know, the Father is going to turn it around on us and say how cool He has made us as His sons and daughters.
0: And just Scott, that's one of the things that I was thinking about as I was reading the book was that just the beauty of, of the body of Christ, literally the body of Christ and yes. one another. And, and I think, unfortunately, we so oftentimes fail to recognize that because the person next to us cut us off in line as we were coming into church. And and I, I believe it was Gregory the Great that said, if we could see one another the way the Lord sees us, yeah. we would be tempted to bow down and worship. The, that this body really is sacramental, yeah. and because Jesus yeah. takes flesh, it will forever be different
2: and you know, uh i don't know if you recall that sermon by c. s. Lewis, which he preached uh, in nineteen forty one at saint mary's chapel um at oxford uh, the title was The Weight of Divine Glory, that we bear the weight of heavenly glory in our bodies, a weight so heavy that only humility can, can bear it. And
0: all day long, we're moving in one or the other direction. To go back to your point that yeah. this culture that says that kind of raises up the body, they don't raise it up enough in that, yeah. in, right. in, by the fact they don't recognize the beauty, the dignity, the glory, the goodness of the body enough just different aspects. No, we of treat
3: it. the body either like it's a temple to be worshiped or a, or a god to be worshiped right. or a problem to be controlled and we don't yeah. realize that it's a temple to be cared for. That's and right. we care for it in death like we care for it in life. And that whole ethos of care versus control or worship shifts everything you do in the body.
1: Right. You know, I love that sermon of C.S. Lewis because the weight of glory, you know, the word for glory in Hebrew, kavodah, literally means weight. It's heavy, you know. So when it's honor your father and mother, the word there, kavodah, is literally, take whatever glory you have and return it to your parents. And if that's true for our earthly parents, how much more for our Father and our our Lady as well? And this idea of glory, this is what we don't add anything to God's glory when we glorify Him. We just open ourselves up for Him to add more and more of His glory to us. There is no kind of zero sum or competition, you know. And you know, something else that you said, Father Dave, you know, we, we say this, we believe this, you know, but I don't think we say the creed too often. I think we mm-hmm. ponder it too little, because like parrots who recite these lines, you know, uh, Pollywanna Cracker, you know, I, we believe in the resurrection of the body, but we don't contemplate right, right, the right, resurrection right. of the body. This flesh will be glorified. God is going to bestow his, the weight of his glory upon us. Again, it's just too good to be true. Let's move on to something more sensitive. If the whole purpose of life is to await the resurrection of the body,
2: then (laughs) we need to remain vigilant. We need to cultivate a sense of surprise uh, and expectancy. I I like that notion that the glory of God is heavy. It is a weight. And if you find it oppressive, that means you're in hell. But if you find it light, uh, blithe, uh, uh, and and if it springs with, with a kind of joy, then, as Chesterton says, you're like the angels. You fly because you take yourself lightly.
1: right? And that's what we need to do, yeah. Yeah, I, I I do think that this is the most neglected part of the creed, because as Augustine said, it is the most objectionable part of the creed. It's the thing that just doesn't show up on people's radar because we have this love-hate relationship with our own body. Yeah. You know, To the extent that we indulge ourselves, to that extent we end up really showing contempt of the very body that we were indulging. And in the process, we plunge our souls downward as well. But when we allow God to lift up the body, the soul is glorified, and then the, the body as the caboose is also. Well, isn't that the real evil of pornography? It doesn't
2: take the body seriously enough. It simply reduces it to a set of parts. You know, I become, a, I become this appetite and you become a commodity. Right. Uh, I, must, I must crave you, I must consume you, and then I discard you because you don't really amount to much. Your body is really pretty <laughs> unimportant.
1: Yeah, more than any golden calf, pornographics you know, images are graven images. Yeah. You know, that really, idolatry and immorality are like two sides of the same coin, but likewise, purity and sanctity are too. Right, yeah. Uh, And and you can't have either one without the other. Yeah. Wonderful.
0: And up next, our panel and our guests will have their final thoughts on today's topic. Please stay with us.
4: So the resurrection of the body is actually an article of faith, of course, for for Catholics. And the reason behind it is really this, that of course in this life we merit, not just with what we do with our souls, but also with our bodies. So we should also be rewarded in that regard. And of course, if the soul is glorified, and then the soul is reunited to the body, then the body is going to be also glorified. It's going to be full of light. It's going to be able to move in an incredibly beautiful way. We see this in the life of Jesus himself. Actually, the transfiguration is a kind of moment of revelation where the glory of his soul manifests uh, into the body. I think one of the most important things to see here is that it really affirms the dignity of the human body. This is a real problem in our time. We know this that the body is denigrated, we have pornography, we have hookup culture, and we also have now the problem of transgenderism, which, which sort of indicates that the body is not really at the core of personal identity. And if you have an article of faith as we have, that actually the body will share in the glorification of the person at the end of time, it's a huge reaffirmation of the dignity of the human body.
0: Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment. So, Regis, if you could start us off with your final thoughts. Yeah,
2: uh, Scott, you've done it again. Uh, <laughs> what, you've written about 40 books. That's more than most people uh, can read. Uh, I can't even count that high, uh, but uh, it's a splendid book, and uh, the cover, I think, is is quite gorgeous. And, uh, Emily, you've done a marvelous job of, of collaboration. Uh, I'd like to recommend it, but uh, I'm afraid The Good Place will have uh, co-opted whatever interest. <laughs> (laughs) people might have in the bloody book. (laughs) But maybe they can juggle both. Uh, Who knows? Uh, There's lots of time. Uh, Somebody uh, once asked, uh, why does God make so many impossible people uh, like you uh, and me? And the answer somebody gave was because he loves to tell stories. But most of the stories come to grief. They end up in a state of shipwreck. So in order to tell the story right, God himself enters time and completes the story. It's his story that uh, we are encouraged to write, you know, the crooked lines that he makes straight. And it seems to me that at the end of the day, we have to accept the body as being part of the story. We are embodied spirits, we're not disincarnate. The body belongs to the person, and we're incomplete. I mean, that's why death is so violent, it's such an unnatural wrenching. It was never intended for man to die. Corruption was not what God had in mind, but the envy of the devil made it possible. So to overcome all of that, Jesus himself dies. But the outcome of that death is pretty, pretty extraordinary. I mean, this is what you've written the book about, and this is probably why, at the margin, we ought not to cremate bodies, because there is something Sacredly terrifying about this body. It's not just what you see, and therefore not just what you might put a match to, or or stuff uh, uh, in an urn, or even bury in the ground. It's destined uh, for a life that goes on forever, and that I think we need to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Emily.
3: Well, you know, when Scott asked me to work with him on the book, I was like. uh, Death, cremation, okay. I love you, Scott. Um, I will do this for you, but I'm not super excited about it. But then, as we got into it, and whole new avenues of thought were opening up, particularly for me about heaven, and what this life with the Father is going to be like, and what our bodies, they're not just going to be resurrected, they're going to be transformed, and all that the body's going to be able to do and enjoy in heaven. And so that got me to thinking more and more about the life we live now because people here, our bodies aren't gonna be resurrected and live that life because they look great or because they accomplished important athletic events or feats. They're gonna be resurrected and live that life because of the grace they've received from Jesus. And so all of the ways that we receive that grace, that's really a shift in how we think about the body. Like, I value my body not because of how it looks, but because of the life that lives in it. I value my body because of the ways it can love and serve others. I value my body because it can worship God in the flesh and receive God in the flesh. And so, so many of the cultural hang-ups we have about the body are really washed away in light of the resurrection and all that's going to open up for us. And so it ended up being a really joyful, beautiful experience and not just a morbid writing about, death and burning <laughs>
1: like i thought it might be That's at the great. beginning ditto, ditto. yes Marvelous sky. you know when we began working on that this book together it was clear that we didn't want to kind of make another you know salvo in the culture war um, because you do not want to wait until a family member dies to enter into an argument a debate mm-hmm. that you're intent upon winning and so you get this book no you know long before that happens you know i think the best the best way to prepare for it is to recognize that uh, the church's tradition, the Word of God, Jesus, and how He treated our body by assuming it and then by giving us His own body. I mean, this just changes everything. And so, what we want to do before we're dealing with hospice or death matters is to recognize that Jesus doesn't just transubstantiate bread into His body, blood, soul, and divinity. He transubstantiates death for each of us into the gift of love, the gift of life, beginning with his own, you know. And I just want to say, you know, this is an invitation for us to rediscover the good news. Jesus Christ, our sovereign King. We want to pledge our hearts oblation to him because that's what he did with us. He gave us his heart, his flesh, his body. It's like, wait, slow down. I mean, it just, again, sort of explodes my heart. Mm. It, 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 it is so much more good news than our minds and hearts can assimilate, but God gives us the power to accept the fact that He loves us more than we can imagine, that He has fulfilled His Word. You know, I love to see the connection between the Old Testament and the New, and then the Scripture and the sacraments, but the sacraments and everyday life, and how the extraordinary grace transforms the ordinary events of birth, of wedding, of funerals into these glimpses into eternity, where it's like, you know, the Catholic Church isn't just true. It's beautiful, it's powerful, you know, it's a faith to, to live for, but it is the best place to die, too, because <laughs> they know what to do with people who are sick and dying, sacramentally, pastorally, but also really all we're sharing with people is that this is what God is intent upon doing because He is more of a father than any of us. You know, so. At the end of the day, I would say this, you know, for people who want to understand their life and where it's headed, where people are in families, where, you know, where all kinds of people have all kinds of beliefs and they argue and that sort of thing. You know, I I think if people read this, they'll say, you know, I, I want that to be true. I'm not sure it is. But if that is what the Catholic faith teaches, if that's what the Word of God accomplishes, if that's why Christ became man, suffered, died, and rose to raise us to this sort of joy, you know, I want to extend the church a line of credit. Right. I want to take Christ at His Word because this is the truth and nothing but the truth. And, you know, so help so us God. God. Yeah. That's, great. that's great. Thank you
0: so much, thank you, Scott, so much for the time and the effort and Emily for this. Uh, If you would like to learn more about today's topic, we have a free handout for you, a fitting response to the body, which is an excerpt from Hope to Die. It's yours free by simply going online to faithandreason.com or by calling the number you'll see at the screen in just a moment. So it's interesting in the light of our conversation, what I actually find myself uh, thinking about and reflecting on is actually a baby in Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. You know, with, with all that we've said about death and that, but it's still, it's that fundamental reality that God takes on flesh, and and it's a little baby, and the baby cries, and the baby's mm. limited, and uh, and and something changes, and something happens in, in the body that the body is is beautiful and dignified and glorified and will forever be. You, you you mentioned Scott, like if people believe this, you know, this whole idea of life and death and resurrection, well. The reality is is everybody's going to have a moment to believe it one way or another. They're going to stand before the Lord. And and I want my prayer to be that that I recognized in this infant in Bethlehem my Savior and my hope and my glory, and by His death and resurrection, that that opens up for me and for us a way of living and, and putting everything that I believe and hope into that and recognizing that, again, crazy as it sounds, a small baby in Bethlehem, uh, a crucified bloodied mass placed in a grave and, in a, and rising. And what appears to be bread that looks just like stale yeah. bread is the risen anointed one. And and to the degree that we're able to recognize that this is the body, right? Uh, the body will be raised and, and we get to participate in that. So thank you so much for, for the richness and the reflection of that. We just, maybe we'll just close with prayer asking the Lord's blessing. Mm-hmm. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, that your Holy Spirit come upon us at this moment, and all those who are viewing this program, that they would know your glory and your love, that they would know the beauty of their body and the resurrection that is in store for them. Jesus, I pray for a grace of faithfulness to be on us and all viewers, that they will one day experience the glory that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Amen.
3: To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381 or call 740-283-6357.